Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and I have four scripture readings for you this morning. Acts 20, verse 28, I'll read these four passages and then I'll pray for our sermon. Acts 20, verse 28 is our first passage, continuing on our series on oaths and vows. This morning we're looking at the church's membership vows. Acts 20, verse 28, this is God's word. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then next passage, turn over just a little bit to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. This is God's word. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And then turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, 21. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 26. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 26. This is God's word. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that, there, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And then look over at Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Hebrews 13, 17, just a little bit further over there to the right. Hebrews 13, 17. This is God's word. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then one more, the first Peter chapter five, verses one through five. So Hebrews, James, first Peter. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. I'll read this passage and then I'll pray for our time in God's word. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. This is God's word. Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray, please. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for... This church, and we thank you for the churches that we've been part of throughout our lives, and we pray 
that you would bless us and help us have a right understanding of the meaning of church membership and why we, we take these oaths, these membership vows, when we become a communicant member of a local church. And we pray that you would help us to see what the scripture says about this. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday, we began our series on lawful oaths and vows. And we looked at James 5, verse 12, and then Matthew 5, 33 to 37. I wanted to read those passages for you again. James 5, 12 says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And then Matthew 5, 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now the primary truths that we learned from these two passages were the following. Number one, oaths and vows are a lawful part of religious worship, which God's children on various occasions ought to take. Two, oaths and vows are solemn promises made calling God to witness that we will do what we promise and that if we don't, he will take vengeance upon us. And thirdly, the sacred and holy name of Almighty God is that alone by which a person is to swear. That's why those passages say, don't swear at all, don't swear at all. What they're really saying is don't swear by all sorts of different things in creation. There is nothing in creation that we're allowed to swear by. Our own integrity, our own word ought to be yes or no. That ought to be our bond. But if we're Christians, we ought to hate lying and hate promise breaking because both are contrary to the character of God, of our Lord Jesus. God is the God of truth and God abominates lying. He hates a lying tongue, we know. Swearing oaths and vows by the name of God ought to be done very infrequently. Only once in a great while and never about trivial matters. Only large and important matters like marriage vows and serving as a public official, serving as an officer in your local church, taking a charge to be a pastor, an elder, a deacon. And this morning, being a church member is one such occasion where it is good to take oaths and vows. Now, why do we have church membership vows in the first place? And the short answer to this question is that the scriptures teach church membership clearly, as we're going to see in our passages. But also, there is no context for Christian discipleship outside of membership in a local church. The idea that someone would be a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, but not a member of a local church with elders and pastors and and hopefully deacons in their lives, that's simply a non-category in the Bible. You'll see this morning as we walk through the passages that that is very much the case. Why do we swear an oath before God concerning what we believe to be true and what we want to be held accountable by elders in our lives in the church to do? Why do we swear an oath to do that? I promise this is what I believe and I promise I will try to live a godly life. Here's why. Professing to be a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ is the most significant and important thing a human being can do in this life. There's nothing more important than that that you will ever do, professing to be a follower of Christ. Think about what happens when a person becomes a Christian. 
when a non-believer becomes a true believer. They are born again by God's spirit, we're told in scripture. John 3, verse 8, Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we see the effects of the new birth. We see those effects. One of those effects is you're going to be part of a local church. You're going to love your brethren. A person is once and for all eternity, legally declared righteous before God's judgment by the shed blood and the imputed righteousness of Christ and their justification. They're no longer orphans. They're no longer God's enemies because of the glorious, altogether gracious, once for all eternity act of adoption into the family of God. Their hearts have been changed, radically changed, from being spiritually dead to being alive in Christ, the scriptures say. God's spirit now indwells them and his spirit causes them to walk in God's commandments, although never perfectly in this life, That which they used to be the willing slaves of, namely their sin, now they hate that old master. And the holy God that they once despised, they now love and they desire to please him. When a dead, unregenerate sinner is made alive in Christ, granted repentance unto life and saving faith in Christ alone, there is nothing, no change imaginable, no turn of events in a person's life that can come close to this. Nothing can come close to it. There are five things that church members promise in our book of church order. And each of them is roundly and soundly biblical. And the first two of those oaths, hopefully you have a handout that you got there on the foyer. If not, I'm going to read them to you. And the first two deal with what we believe. You realize you're swearing an oath to God. This is what I hold to be true. It's wonderful. It's the truth that sets us free. The biblical theological truth that sets us free. We're required to confess before the Lord's church that we believe the gospel as it is proclaimed to us in scripture. You see those first two vows there? Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? And secondly, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God and savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel? You see that passage in Acts 20, 28? The elders there at Ephesus were told by Paul, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. One of the reasons that passage is so vital here is how can, how can men shepherd people if they don't know if they're their sheep or not? If they're not part of that local fellowship? The first solemn oath that a professing Christian takes is that they believe themselves to be not righteous, but sinful in the sight of God. That's the first thing you swear in your membership vows. I hold myself to be a sinner in the sight of God. They confess to be true what the word of God says about them, that they are sinners that fall short of the glory of God and are in need of saving. Notice that it then says that we acknowledge that we are without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God. What that means is we confess that without the sovereign mercy of God, we would have no expectation of going to heaven when we died. When you join the church, that's what you are saying. I hold myself to be a sinner in God's sight. I have no hope of going to heaven, no expectation that I would go to heaven, except in the mercy of God. 
Paul reminded the Christians of Ephesus who they once were before the gospel came to them and saved them. In Ephesians 2.11, listen to the word of God here. Paul said to this, this young group of Christians, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. And so the church at Ephesus, they confessed the same thing. Before Jesus saved us, we had no hope. We had no expectation of going to heaven. And that's perfectly consistent with everything else Ephesians chapter 2 has already stated. Before God saved them, the Ephesians were described, just like us, as being dead in their trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 3 among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To be a true Christian... You must recognize your sin and its only remedy in the sovereign mercy of God. We promise God, we promise Christ's church, our elders, its leaders, we have no hope of going to heaven except in the mercy of God. We were like everyone else, children of wrath, but God intervened. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the first great membership vow. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope of going to heaven except in his sovereign mercy? So weigh that carefully in your mind. You're saying... Without Christ, I would rightly go to hell. Without the Lord Jesus, I would justly be condemned by God. Now I'll move into the second vow there. Look at the second one. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Now what does it mean? to receive and to rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Here's what it means. It means to believe in him. To receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. That's what scripture is talking about when it says we're justified by faith. Another word for faith is belief. To believe on Jesus means you no longer are trusting in or relying on anything that you do, anything you've ever done, are doing, or will ever do to be saved from the wrath of God and enter heaven. To rest upon Jesus means that you are not working for your salvation. That in the way you conceive of it in your own mind, nothing you do plays any role whatsoever in getting you into heaven. None. The Apostle Paul set those two things off as, as starkly contrasted as they could possibly be. There's working and then there's believing. You cannot mix them. Paul says in Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are counted not as grace, but as debt. But to the one not working, but believing, his faith is credited as righteousness. The second you think 
What you're doing is going to save you. You do not believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is not to work. To the one not working, but believing. To trust in Jesus for salvation is to stop working altogether to try to save yourself. Permanently. Forever. But does this mean that the Christian does no good works and bears no fruit in their life? Of course not. Just remember, however, in light of all of the modern confusion going on today on this all-important doctrine of saving faith, listen, please. The fruit that grows on the tree does not make the tree good or bad. The fruit that grows on the tree does not make the tree good or bad. It only makes it known to other men whether the tree is a good tree or a bad tree. Works do not make us good or bad. Good works are the fruit and evidence that true faith in Christ exists. That it's divinely given by God's effectual and irresistible regenerating grace. It exists in the heart of that redeemed sinner. How do you know it? Their life has been transformed. But, but does that transformation play a role of some kind in getting him into heaven? No, never. Can't. Absolutely not. In no way. Okay, am I being clear enough on that? Okay, I just want to make sure. Good works and obedience to God are not part of saving faith. They are the fruit of saving faith. They're not part of saving faith. They're the fruit of saving faith. Saving faith is the opposite of doing works or obeying God. Saving faith is simply trusting in the finished work of Christ, his great work, and his whole life of law keeping, and his cross work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the third day. That is alone what we are trusting in to get us into heaven. And without an understanding of that, there is no Christian. The first two oaths that a professing Christian makes when they become a covenant member, a communicant member of a local church, has to do with the law and the gospel. We first acknowledge our sin. The law condemns me. I have no hope of going to heaven except in the mercy of God. For someone to truly embrace Jesus as their savior, they have to be convinced on a personal level that they are lost. That they're unable to do anything to remedy that situation. God must act. God must save us. We repent. We believe because God sovereignly granted both of those saving graces to us. Question 72 of the larger catechism asks a wonderful question. What is justifying faith? What does it mean for someone to really have faith in Jesus? Here's what it means. Justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. To be a Christian and to understand the gospel rightly, we ourselves have to be convinced of our sin and misery. We are convinced we can do nothing, no works, no obedience, no sacrifices, nothing to recover ourselves out of that lost condition. Just like the people in Jerusalem. Remember the people there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 when Peter went back in there? After the 40 days with Jesus, Jesus ascends back to heaven. They're anointed with the Holy Spirit. They go in there and preach. And they tell that crowd this in Acts 2.36, Peter preaching, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
And what we see in the next verse, it shows the Holy Spirit of God was working through that proclamation. And he was plowing the ground in those people's hearts. The very next verse says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Why did they ask that question like that? They became convinced of their sin and misery. We murdered the son of God. What are we going to do? They weren't thinking, well, let's go and try to be extra good now. They knew we're past that. What can we do? They were convinced of the disability in themselves and all other creatures to recover them out of this lost condition. It's a cry of desperation from guilty people knowing that they're guilty, terribly guilty, and are therefore in grave trouble with God. Seeing and feeling and knowing how deep, how unspeakably terrible this trouble is that we are in, that's the foundation upon which saving faith is built in a person's heart. They will not really trust in Jesus' righteousness alone to save them and to get them into heaven unless they're convinced nothing else can. Nothing else can get me into heaven. And this is why we speak of salvation by solus Christus, Christ alone. And how do we receive him? Faith alone. To be a Christian is to be convinced, forever convinced by the Spirit of God that nothing you have done, are doing, or will do could ever in any way, shape, or form save you or even assist you or contribute to getting into heaven. This is why true Christians call Jesus their Savior, not their cheerleader. He's their Savior. He doesn't assist us along the way. He does it all. It is He alone who does all the saving. We simply receive and rest upon him alone. And then we walk in good works. We are followers of Christ. We we are eager, willing, hungry to do good works, to put sin to death, to pursue holiness, to love our brethren, to study the word of God, to worship with God's people, to love the lost world, and to see Christ's banner lifted high so that he receives the glory and the praise and the honor that is due to his name. But none of that is part of what saving faith is. None of that has anything to do with what faith in Christ is. Those are the fruits of saving faith. They are the fruit of salvation, never the cause of it. To be a communicant member of a local church means you understand this. And you're going to live and die trusting only in Jesus. Only in his personal righteousness to justify and save you at the last day. When you take communion, if you you are a person who takes communion, think of what those hands have done, your hands. When our gracious Father puts the elements signifying the body and blood of Christ into them. I remember hearing the story of a missionary. Uh, When I was in seminary, they told us a story about a missionary who labored among cannibals for years. And eventually many of these cannibals came to know Christ and they repented of their wickedness. The missionary said the first time they had a church service for these newly baptized cannibals who had repented of their sins and come to Jesus. He said he was moved by those hands that were stretched forth that were once stained with the blood of their brethren had been cleansed and were receiving the signs of the body and blood of Christ given and shed for them for the forgiveness of their sins. Let the Lord's Supper be a wonderful, encouraging and assuring reminder. It's what Jesus did and nothing we do that saves us. The whole burden was carried by Christ. The whole of our sin has been borne away. We stand legally clothed in the seamless, spotless, perfect, and pristine white robe of his righteousness. 
His obedience to that law that curses us, we simply receive him and put him on. We simply receive him and we wear that righteousness like a robe. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That Greek word, dorian, gift. How are we justified? How do you get into heaven? It's pure, free gift. Kids, on your birthday, at Christmas, after you opened your gifts, did all of you go to your parents or your family or whoever gave you those gifts and ask them how much you owe them now? How much do I owe you for the tiny cars? How much do I owe you for the Play-Doh? Yeah, I never did either. Can you imagine that? But if you did that and they accepted payment for those presents, they wouldn't be presents. If they accepted payment for the gifts, they wouldn't be gifts anymore, would they? A gift is something someone else paid for and gave you free of charge. That's why the confession, that's why the scriptures speak of us receiving Christ as a gift, justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We just receive them. We never, ever try to pay for them or earn them. If we did that, they wouldn't be gifts, would they? And if we did that, if we were working to try to save ourselves in any way at all, what are we saying about the finished work of Christ? We're saying it's not enough. What he did is not sufficient. He needs my chump change. He needs my good work, staying with sin. No, he doesn't, I assure you. When you join a church, you're swearing an oath to God that that is, in fact, what you really believe. Now look at oath three and four there on your handout. Oath number three. Do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? And number four, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Look at those passages, 1 Corinthians 5. Let me read them again. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? You see what he's saying? There are those that are inside the church and those who are outside the church. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. It's not possible to understand that passage apart from understanding some concept of church membership. If there are outsiders and insiders when it comes to the church, what does that refer to? 1 Corinthians 5.13 there issues the command, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is a guy that was engaged in very serious sin against God. You learn about him in 1 Corinthians and they excommunicated him out of the church. They tossed him out of the church. And then in 2 Corinthians, he was allowed back in. He had repented and he was brought back in. The passage in 1 Corinthians 12 that we looked at, it assumes that all of the parts of the body are there. Unless providentially hindered, I want to encourage you all, please. Unless you're providentially hindered in some way, every member of a local church ought to attend all the services of that church and make being part of the life of that church a priority. In Corinth, the problem was people saw themselves as way more important or saw other people as less important to that church, to that body. But I just would say at least they could see each other's faces in order to say to one another, I have no need of you. For many churches today, there are members that rarely attend anything. And this is surely sinful and must be repented of and stopped. The members of the local church are not allowed to look at one another and think, I don't need you. But don't we often do that? 
Do you really need these people that you're sitting by here? Do you need them? Do you need me? Do I need you? We all need each other. All of us do. Your relationships with the members of the local church that God, by his sovereign decree and plan, has put you in, those are the most important relationships that you have with people. You know, my parents, my parents have been members of the same church for 40 years. They joined that church when I was in second grade. And now that they're older, and now that they're struggling with their health, it's been amazing to see the people that knew me when I was a little kid and prayed for me my whole life. It's soul-stirring to see them. I'm like, man, these people prayed for me. I mean, I had no chance. <laughs> there were so many of them. But what a blessing. Sometimes people are blessed, and, and many of their brothers and sisters in Christ, they're also blood relatives. What a blessing that is. If your brothers and sisters in the Lord are, include your spouse, your parents, your, your kids, your siblings, grandparents, and so on. But for other people, they're the only Christian in their whole family and their whole earthly family. But I want to encourage you, whatever your situation might be, church life and these people are not expendable. It's not something you can simply decide to take or leave. When you become a communicant member of, of a local church, you swear an oath to live as becomes the followers of Christ in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And to live as becomes the followers of Christ simply means you promise to live as a Christian. This means that you will make every effort to walk in the way of life, in obedience to God's commandments. Never perfectly, of course, none of us can do that. But the entire Christian life is an unending war with sin. And this is your vow to God, it's your vow to your brothers and sisters. You're going to fight the good fight together. If you sin, you'll be repentant for it. We'll be repentant for it. If we go through seasons of doubting and struggle and discouragement, we'll persevere together. We'll continue to attend public worship together, to fellowship together, and to participate in church life together. You know, American culture has always valued independence. Independence. I mean, we haven't, I mean, our most famous war, the American War for Independence. We're independence. We have, we have independence down to our gills. In fact, we often hear people boasting that so-and-so, yeah, they're very independent, very independent. But you know, the scripture encourages us and lets us know we're not independent of one another. We're not independent of one another. There's a sense in which, yeah, there's a, there's a good kind of independence. We ought to do what's in our power to take care of ourselves, to take care of our own things, to, to stand for the truth, to be strong in doing those things by ourselves if need be. But mankind was not made to be alone. He was made to be in communion and fellowship with other people. Now, sin makes this complicated. It makes it difficult and often very painful. But try, we must. With the help of God's Spirit, we can have great fellowship with each other. We can be there for each other. We can rejoice together, weep together, worship together, take communion together, sing together, eat together, play ping pong together. What does it mean to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? It means you attend. It means you tithe. It means you keep track of those prayer requests and those praises that go out. When one member suffers, we all suffer together. When someone's not doing well, we're not doing well. We pray for them. We're part of the mystical body of Christ here together. Life in God's world is about loving God and loving people, especially our brethren. 
Strive to be great at whatever it is that you do. Be passionate about your calling, your vocation, your hobbies, yes. Be the best that you can be, yes. Just remember that we are working for God's glory and for the service of our neighbor. Love your neighbor by working hard for them. Be dedicated in your job. But know that the thing that matters the most in our lives as Christians is that people, other images of God, see and know the love of Christ in us, especially our brothers and sisters in our churches. The word of God contains a very strong and absolute statement on this matter. For all who profess to know Christ, we need to weigh this carefully. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Just listen to God's word as I read it to you. 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. Why did John write that? Because there were a lot of people that said that. I love God. I believe in Jesus. I love his word. I love the gospel. But they hated their brothers. And John said, that person's a liar. He who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Professions of faith in Jesus, professions of love to God, we're told by scripture, are lies if a person does not love their brothers and sisters in their local church. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't care about whether they see or have fellowship with other Christians. If a person can easily discard their church, do they really love God? If their love for their brethren cannot cover a sin or two, let alone a multitude of sins, is there a real love for God? There, 1 Peter 4.8 says that. Love one another. Be tenderhearted towards one another. Kindly affectionate to one another. And love with a love that covers a multitude of sins. It's impossible that a true believer would not love their brethren. Romans 5.5 says... The expectation of going to heaven, hope, does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian and dwelt by the Spirit, you can't help but love your Christian family and love the truth and love God's word. You can't. The love of God's being poured out of you, we're, said, we're told. A true believer can't help but love their brethren because God's love has been poured out in their hearts. And God loves your brethren and loves your sisters in the Lord And so you will too. They love God. They love the truth of the gospel. A true believer is going to despise false doctrine because it's dishonoring to Christ. They love their brethren and they long to see the truth set more people free. Please know as well that when a person takes these vows, they don't do so begrudgingly. It's not like I have to support the church and it's worship and work to the best of my ability. Okay, I guess. I have to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Okay, I guess. No, the believer is happy to make those promises. They know they need help. They know they need the church. They are so very thankful to have a church, to have elders, to have deacons, to have a pastor, to have the ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper, baptism, to have the gospel preached accurately, the Bible believed faithfully, starting at the first verse. They're beside themselves with joy about it. Just like the excitement of a Christian couple in a wedding ceremony. You know, I've done more weddings than I I can remember. And they're always happy, excited to pledge their lives together. And I've had some email exchanges with with people. I talked to a guy this past Thursday. This past Thursday. 
who he, along with several other families, left an OPC church. An OPC church and these five families, there's about 30 of them total, have nowhere to go to church now. I said, if you don't mind me asking, what, what happened? He said, they're compromising with the LGBT issues. Very clearly they are. And I just thought, wow, good grief. He and five other families with kids, young families, they meet together. They have no elders. They don't have sacraments. They don't have the Lord's Supper. And I could hear in this guy's voice on the phone how much he wanted that. He wanted so badly to have shepherds in his life. And he longed to have a place to go to worship he could trust. Now, why do I share that with you? Because this young Christian husband and father, he was heartbroken that he had to leave his church. And he was deeply desirous of having a church to call home. Isn't it remarkable and and kind of sad too, but it's remarkable. It's wonderful. Their instincts were to stay together. So they have this, this little group. At least they have each other. These five families, they didn't scatter to the wind. They all stuck together because they're family. They're brothers and sisters. They don't want to be alone. None of us should ever want to be alone. When hardship or trials happen in local churches, that's an invitation to stick closer than ever. You know who taught me that besides the word of God? My parents did. That church that they're still members of has been through some train wrecks. My mom and dad told me when, those, when they happened, when I was a kid, wouldn't even cross our minds to turn our back on these people. This is our invitation to love even stronger. It's a reminder when those trials happen, it's a reminder of how much we do need one another. It's a reminder not to take our churches for granted. It's a reminder of just how important our love is for one another. How much is at stake in our love for one another. How precious the true gospel is. How important the truth of the Bible is. How monumental and vital biblical worship is. God forbid that any of us ever do anything to hurt a local church. Confuse the sheep or dishonor the sacred name of our Lord and Savior. You want to understand how provoked God is if people do that kind of thing? Read the book of Revelation. How how does God take people hurting his bride? Not very kindly. Therefore, we have these vows. Look at them again, verse number three and four. Do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Number four, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability. The glory of Jesus Christ, whose sacred and holy name we wear if we profess to be his disciples, that's always what's at stake. What more, what could be more important than that? Nothing. The glory of Jesus' name, the glory of his name, it's more important than our comfort, it's more important than our reputation, our possessions, it's more important than our family relationships. The glory of Jesus is more important than our marriages. And it's more important than even our lives. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I would encourage you to read the first few chapters of that. Many, many Christian people lost their lives in brutal ways rather than do what seemed like a small, insignificant sin against God. Just say, Corios Kaisar. Just say, Caesar is Lord, pinch incense. You don't need to really mean it. And they said, no way we're saying that. No way are we doing that, because that would bring dishonor to our Lord's name. Fifthly, and finally, you see the fifth vow. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? There's that Hebrews 13 passage. It's a command, obey your leaders, submit to them. 
For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this will be unprofitable for you. And then you see verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. I won't read the whole thing to you again. Verse 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. In the home, children are called to obey their parents. In our countries, we're called to obey our government as long as they don't require us to sin against God. As individuals, we're required to obey the law of God. And in the church, we are to obey our leaders, our shepherds, our elders, our pastors, our bishops, our overseers. Those are all ways of referring to the same office. God is a God of government, and he's placed the government over his church. And he entrusts it to fallen but redeemed men who are specially called and gifted to hold those offices. They're nominated and then elected by congregations when those congregations see that they meet the qualifications spelled out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. What does it mean, though, to study the church's purity and peace? You promise to study the purity and peace of your church. It means that we need to obey the word of God about endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 verse 3. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Don't stir up strife in your church. If your convictions suddenly change on something, be in consultation with your elders and talk to them. Meet with them. Pray with them. Search the Word of God with an attitude of humility and submission. Don't make mountains out of molehills. Our church has a detailed confession of faith and the shorter and larger catechisms. Your elders are bound to these documents. But here's the primary issue being communicated in this particular vow regarding the peace and purity of the church. Please listen to me very carefully. Please hear me. Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If your brother sins against you, go And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If someone wrongs you, if you're offended by someone, you talk to the other and you talk to other people instead of them, you're sinning against the purity and peace of your church. If you're offended by someone, you are required by God incarnate to go talk to them alone. Not to talk to anybody else, just them alone, said Jesus. One on one. You know, if that passage was obeyed, church splits, ruined relationships, all sorts of heartache could be avoided. When I was first ordained many years ago up there in Ohio, there was a, there was a really, really big church building. And they uh, wanted me to come do pulpit supply. And I said, sure, I'll come, I'll come preach for you. And this was a big building. And they, they owned the building. I got there. There were eight people there for worship. And the elders, there were two of them, left. They wanted to pray with me before I preached. And I, they prayed for the time of worship. And I said, guys, if you don't mind me asking, what happened here? And one, the older one put his head down into his hand and said, we failed to love and we failed to forgive. And, we, and it destroyed our church. You know that fifth membership promise? You're swearing to God that you'll study the peace and purity of this church. 
If someone wrongs you or offends you in some way, go to that person alone and don't talk to anyone else about it unless you're going back a second time with witnesses. As much as it depends on us, we are to be at peace with all people. Let as much roll off your back as possible. Above all things, 1 Peter 4, 8, have fervent love for one another. For love will, will cover a multitude of sins. If we don't love with a love that can cover a multitude of sins, we're going to be offended by everything. But if something that someone does or says that just won't leave your mind and is still there a couple days later, go to that person by yourself and resolve it. And I want to tell you, if you've not talked to anyone else about that issue, and that person who offended you knows you haven't talked to anyone else about this, you'll gain their respect. And nine, nine times out of a hundred, you'll resolve your dispute and you'll be friends for life. You'll be friends for life. By the grace of God, three times that's happened in my life. Someone offended me. And everything in me wanted to talk to everyone but them. I thought, you got to practice what you preach. And you know, all three of those guys are friends to this day with me. And one of them came to my father's house while I was there in Cincinnati and came to see me. We've been friends for more than 20 years. He was one of them. The guy, that guy ticked me off once and called him. Haven't talked to anybody else. Resolved it five minutes. We've been best friends ever since. You ever think of that? That conflict might be an invitation for you to draw closer to someone? You obey scripture together. You can resolve it. You can be the best of friends after that. You earn each other's respect by obeying the word of God. The temptation will be to talk about what that person did with other people. I would exhort you, never give in to that temptation. Just follow Matthew 18, 15. Go to the person alone. Go privately. That's how you fulfill your promise, your vow to God to study the peace and purity of the church. Bitterness and unforgiveness, they're lethal to churches. And they're one of Satan's most potent devices and one of his worst schemes to destroy churches and their members and their love for each other. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, in his second letter, after he told them, this guy that's unrepentant for all this sexual immorality, you guys got to get him out of the church. And they did. But then the guy repented. He repented of what he did. And Paul said this to him, 2 Corinthians 2.10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the, that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And then he tells them, reaffirm your love to him, please. Reaffirm your love for him. But then he says this, you, you forgive one another. I forgive him for, the sake, for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Bitterness, unforgiveness. <clears throat> That destroys churches, and that's one of Satan's most potent weapons to do it. And when you join a church, you, you vow to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You promise to obey Jesus. If someone offends you in any way, you go to them one-on-one -on -one and resolve it. If we ignore Matthew 18 when we're offended, we're putting our churches in grave danger, but we're also breaking our promise to God. How many local churches have been destroyed by pride like this? by simple, sinful unwillingness to follow our Redeemer's instructions. A lot. Now, next Sunday, we're going to look at the elder and deacon vows, the, the vows that elders make, the vows that deacons make, and the biblical basis uh, for those. Well, let's uh, close in prayer.
Father, we thank you that Jesus died for the ways that we've broken even these vows, too. And we pray you would help us to strive more and more to live in conformity with what we promised those who are communicant members here. We thank you that our Savior is all-sufficient to redeem us and save us, no matter what we have done. But we pray that you would protect this church and protect us, help us to love each other, help us understand these vows that we make. And we pray that Jesus' name would always be lifted on high by our church and that he would never suffer loss because of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.